Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. That was a bit of an offshoot to our episode on casting. I've had the opportunity since then to have a chat with a a German jeweler I know who's quite well-versed in the craft, casting and and silversmithing, goldsmithing in general. And in talking to him, one of the, the interesting things that he mentioned to me that I wasn't aware of is that zinc turns out to be a really handy element to add to metals when they're casting. Uh, in particular, he was talking about casting rose gold and, and variants of yellow gold. Uh, but what the zinc does, from what he was telling me, is it just allows the alloy to become more more liquid, uh, more fluid as it's going into the cast. So it just flows better throughout the cast that you're trying to make. Uh, the trick, though, is that if you're temperature's not quite right. So it's got to be Goldilocks. If it's too hot, then it becomes brittle. If it's too cold, it doesn't flow well. To me, it was more the post-processing side of things that, that I found interesting about this because you, you don't have to worry about having zinc in your alloy if you're just rolling and, and cutting and, and forming the metal with a hammer. Uh, but if you're, you're casting something, the, the example that he gave is he went to basically have the piece assayed afterwards. So basically putting a stamp or hammering a stamp mark into the the shaft of a ring that he had cast uh, using one of the first times that he had done a zinc-based rose gold alloy. And he said that the the ring literally shattered on him just because it formed sort of a crystalline structure. Uh, whereas that not wouldn't have been an issue at all for an alloy that had had no zinc in it. So it just was interesting for me to hear that, and it also sort of drove drove home for me the the differences that an alloy can make. For instance, when you're looking at a repeating watch that chimes the time for you, making those cases in in the old fashioned way, watchmakers swear by the fact that you get better tonal notes just because of the structure of the metal, and it makes a lot of sense if you're casting something versus forging something the the internal atomic structure is quite different so i don't know if you had any thoughts there i don't do a lot of alloying of gold uh there just isn't enough demand in in what i'm i'm doing i do play around with some some silver alloys we don't use zinc in silver alloys at all uh there, there just isn't um there just isn't the need for it so what what the uh, the zinc is doing is it's um it's lowering the surface tension of the, uh, or at least that's my guess, is that it's lowering the surface tension of the metal, and that's allowing it to flow better in, into the mold itself. And and that's a challenge. Uh, one of the things we'll talk about in a later episode is uh, Niello, which is a, a silver alloy that I use in, as an inlay in in some of my pieces. Having a high surface tension is a huge problem mm. in there, and that's something that I'm working on trying trying to fix. And and so when you're you're ca- making a, an alloy for casting, there are certain wetting agents and metals that you can add to it to reduce the surface tension, you know, and again, make it so that it, it sort of flows better. Uh, the zinc that I've had problems with in the past is from brass. Brass has, uh, has zinc in it. One of the issues that I find with that is it, brass has a, a fairly high melting temperature and the zinc tends to burn off. And one of the things you have to be very careful of, now there's there's a lot more zinc in brass than there is in the rose gold, for instance, that, um, uh, that this gentleman is casting in. And one of the things you have to be careful of when that zinc burns off is you don't want to inhale the fumes from zinc. You can tell there's zinc burning in there because you get this greenish-blue flame that comes up off the top of the metal. I've had zinc poisoning once uh, when I was working with something, some uh, metal that I thought was a bronze, which doesn't have zinc in it. It has uh, tin in it, but it was a brass instead. The company that sold it to me had mislabeled it. And it's you get a lungful of that, and it, it feels like you have a really bad flu for a couple of days. And um, it's it's nasty stuff. In in the quantities that you're using in, in gold and rose gold, then you know you don't have to worry about it too much. But you do need to be careful about it. If you're, if you're casting brass, uh, you want to make sure that you're not inhaling those fumes. And as you say, with structure, grain structure of the metal, anytime I can, I try to work with a metal that's been work hardened, you know, that's been, that's been mechanically formed, uh, just because it is so much stronger. 
So if you're casting something, it, it has a it's more porous than something that's been compressed. So if you're rolling it on a mill, for instance, if you're making sheet, you'll cast that as an ingot, and that'll be you know that that metal will be kind of porous. And as you roll that sheet or that that ingot down in a rolling mill into sheet, uh, you know you might compress it from let's say five or six millimeters thick into a sheet that's a millimeter thick. So you're reducing its cross-section considerably. And in that process, you're compressing the metal into a finer and finer grain structure, and it, it becomes much stronger. In my case, I will then go off and deep draw it, which we can talk about it in a, in a future episode, but effectively you're using a hydraulic press to mechanically shape it from a flat sheet into a tube or a cylinder. And again, that process of working the metal of of moving it into a different shape without melting it changes the grain structure of the metal and it makes it considerably harder than something that you cast so there's there's a lot of alchemy involved in in metals and in in alloys and it's it's one of those things that they're they're people who who spend a lot of their their professional life working on different alloys and and working on different metals and trying to figure out how to improve the quality of metals. When I was at uh, the, the Santa Fe Symposium earlier in the year, there were a few talks uh, related to white gold. White gold is, is one of those, those metals that people are always looking for uh, a gold that is very, very white in color. Uh, unfortunately, silver tends not to be as hard as a lot of the golds, um, as a lot of the white golds. Uh, but it's also much whiter than the white golds. It also isn't as valuable and so, you know, isn't as desirable in, in something like a watch. So there's a lot of work being done in trying to make white golds whiter. But you run into other problems where you then make them very brittle. Uh, you make it so that they're, you, you know, you can't machine them or you can't roll them. There are a lot of challenges with, with alloying and it's... Uh, it's it's an interesting interesting science and and again you know science there's a lot of science involved in it but at the end of the day there's also some alchemy in there there's some you know that that unknown in terms of what do you add in here what do you you know why do you add this little bit there why do you add that little bit there mm -hmm. yeah and even just trying to get an even distribution of elements within an alloy based on all their melting temperatures and the way that they they interact with each other on a molecular level can be quite a challenge as well even just as you said there with the zinc burning off? When you start adding different metals together, so for instance, you take sterling silver, which is 92.5% silver and 7.5% copper. The sterling silver melts at a lower temperature than either pure silver or pure copper. So sometimes you get weird things happening like that where it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make sense that the two things you know, would have a, different, a lower melting temperature when you add them together. And that melting temperature will change dramatically depending on what the percentages are. In my case, I use a lot of argentium. Argentium has a little bit more silver in it, uh, an extra percent of silver, so it's 93.5%. But it also has a little bit of germanium in it. It's, I think it's like 1.5% germanium, something like that. And again, that germanium dramatically changes the properties of the metal. It's not a lot by weight, but it's enough that the alloy doesn't tarnish as quickly uh, it becomes harder, so you can work hard in it more. The melting temperature drops a little bit, but then it also becomes more fragile. If you try quenching it when it's red hot, you'll make it very, very brittle. Alloying metals is an interesting problem, and it, it's something that I'm I'm learning more and more about. But it's a deep subject that um, mm. you know that's difficult to to know everything about. Yeah, absolutely, and even metallurgists and material specialists dedicate their lives to this subject absolutely it's essentially an infinite area of exploration all the different ways that you can combine elements together if people are interested in in reading more about uh more authoritative work about alloying uh, i i highly recommend going to the santa fe symposium website one of the wonderful things about that that symposium all of the papers since 2000 so the last 17 years worth of papers are all available for free on their website anyone can go in and download them they're all there as PDFs. So there's some, there's been some excellent talks. Uh, Chris Cordy in particular, uh, he was over from the UK, and he's given a number of talks over the years about um, about metallurgy. 
uh, and speaking about all different metals, uh, there were there were three or four this year that that were talking about different um, different metals and and the metallurgy behind them. So if people are interested in reading more about it and and reading from people who actually know what they're talking about instead of instead of someone like me who's a, who's a, a rank amateur when it comes to metallurgy. Uh, I, I highly recommend people people check out those those papers. They're um, they're worth reading. Now back to the zinc poisoning in there. Did you have to seek medical attention for that, or does it something that just wore off over? Should I have seek medical attention? <laughs> Probably. Um, I didn't. Uh, I just you know I knew what it was. I you know I had spoken to a few friends who'd had who'd had the same problem, and you know I just took a couple of days off from the shop, and and it was okay. And then went back into the shop a couple of days later, and there's this sort of fine zinc powder over everything from the you know the fumes that have have precipitated out. So it depends on obviously on how serious it is. In this case, it was it was relatively minor, and um, and I I didn't have any long term effects from it, but the um, the short term effects were were definitely nasty. It, it feels like a really bad flu. So. Uh, it really gets into your lungs and and affects you there. So I definitely recommend anytime you're working with um, with anything that has any large amounts of uh, zinc in it. If you're dealing with lead, um, a lot of different things that are that are going to be hazardous to you. Make sure that you're, especially if you're heating them uh, to the point where they're melting. Uh, be sure to work inside of a, a fume hood or work in a very well ventilated shop so that you're not dealing with uh, with the side effects of that. Switching gears a bit here, you and I both recently were able to catch La Machine here in Ottawa. Yeah, we're fortunate that uh, the city of Ottawa decided to bring uh, La Machine, which is a, a, I guess, a live performance troupe from from France. I think we got the first visit, the first visit of this particular group on uh, in North America. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely phenomenal, mind-boggling, uh, really, to see these things come to life. The first I'd ever heard of La Machine. Uh, was an elephant that they had paraded, which also, I believe, toured the world. The two beasts that they brought over here was a a giant spider and a a dragon that arrived without wings, but then went and found its wings. And these these two beasts sort of faced off uh, after roaming the streets of the city for a couple of days. Yeah, and I guess we should should describe the, the machines a little bit. These are large mechanical puppets effectively that are driven through hydraulics and when i say large i mean several stories tall when they they rear up and they and they're they're sort of at their full height and uh, they're incredibly impressive up close um i was fortunate i saw the um the performance on sunday afternoon and i was right at the barrier for when the the spider uh, came by its legs were over top of my head, I could have jumped up and grabbed onto one of these legs. It was I was that close to it. Incredibly skilled puppeteers because each each of the limbs and and each of the elements is controlled by a separate puppeteer who's on the the machine itself. And uh, they did a spectacular job of that. And one of the things that that really impressed me about the performance, uh, not only do they have these unbelievable puppets that that they're that they're controlling and and sort of driving through the streets, um, but they also had a live musical performance with it as well so they have a a small orchestra effectively that are you know sort of riding behind this this giant spider as it's moving through the streets and um and giving a live music performance at the same time and uh it was uh the combination was uh was quite spectacular Mm -hmm. and into that mix you throw a bit of fire and smoke and bubbles and water and steam that was uh quite the show certainly unforgettable you know it left quite an impression on just about anyone i've I've spoken to about it and in terms of the crowds and the density of the crowds uh, because these are very singularly focused event unlike canada day where there are things going on all over the city and but just the way everyone was pressing in uh, to get a good good close look at these things, uh, it was just the, the sheer number of people. And all the restaurants downtown actually ran out of food. Like, I've heard of a single restaurant here, they're running out of food, but to have pretty much every restaurant downtown completely 
out of food was mind-boggling as well. And it's a testament just to the sheer number of people who came to check it out. It's impressive. The Ottawa Ottawa is really a pretty sleepy town after hours. At least downtown Ottawa is. The market is a good place to go if you're if you're around in the evening and you want to you know you want some entertainment or you want to go to a, a good bar or restaurant. But as you say, Canada Day is one of the one of the events that we we get a large number of people at, and and I've never seen that many people downtown except at a big Canada Day celebration. Uh, it was just incredible the the number of people, and I think they estimated over four days there were seven hundred and fifty thousand people that uh, that gathered for for the the shows in total. Hmm. So that that's impressive in a in a city that's a little over a million people. Uh, that, that's a, a sizable turnout. So if you're if you happen to see La Machine coming through your part of the world, and and I think it's it's sort of touring around North America. This particular show is touring around North America. Uh, if you happen to be close by, it's worthwhile making the trip to go to it. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Now, you sounds like you got a good close-up look at the spider. Did you get very close to the dragon as well? Uh, we were probably 20 or 30 feet from the dragon as well. It, it was it was fascinating seeing how they how they created this um, the, these puppets and and seeing the the motion that they're able to get out of it. It's it's quite exquisite. Like they're 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 very complicated movements that they're able to get out of these puppets. Yeah, they really look like they come to life. Yeah, yeah. I was I was able to get up nice and close with the dragon while it was sleeping when it first hmm. arrived here in town. That was the closest I was able to get. If I if I wanted to, I could have reached out and, and touched it, um, but I was able to get a, a good good look at the full length of it and all the intricate details in the way that it. It's put together and, and built. And even when it was just there resting, it was really neat to see. It had this really deep, bassy breathing sound and the odd bit of smoke that would, would puff out of it. Yeah, it's it was amazing how expressive it was when, when so we were there when they when the dragon woke up uh, on the Sunday performance. And again, it's it's incredible how, how expressive the, the puppet is. Uh, you know, it's you know, obviously huge steel, you know, contraption. Uh, I think they're probably using fiberglass for the for a lot of the exterior, but uh, they they did an impressive job with the expressiveness of of the uh, the machine. And if you know anybody that's in that was in Ottawa this weekend, I'm sure you got sick and tired of seeing photos of uh, of these, this thing. I know uh, I know a few friends in Toronto were uh, were were getting tired of seeing all the cool dragon shots because uh, for Canada 150, Toronto decided to bring in a big rubber ducky. And uh, I think they were they were a little jealous of our uh, of our dragon when uh, when they got the big rubber ducky. <laughs> I look forward to seeing what La Machine comes up with in the future too, if they they continue. I mean, they certainly seem to have been successful with everything they've done thus far. Be neat to see how how this evolves further. Now, one of the things we wanted to talk about is uh, watchmaking. We wanted to get a little bit more into that. I, I think for a lot of people, the term watchmaker is a bit of a mystery because I think for most people, when they hear the term watchmaker, they think about somebody who's making a watch from scratch. But that's not really what a watchmaker does, is it? Why, why don't you describe a little bit? What, what, what are the kinds of things that you do you know, sort of on a regular basis as a watchmaker. Yeah, the title watchmaker is a bit of a misnomer. I tend to try and avoid calling myself one. However, it's a generally accepted term for what it is that I do. So when it comes to filling out something like a, a census or answering the, the classic dinner party question of, so what do you do? And I don't particularly feel like getting into exactly what it is that I do. I, I do find watchmakers serves as a handy shorthand. Making a watch like truly making a watch from the raw material as a, a single individual is supremely rare. To be honest, I don't know for certain if anyone has ever actually done it. I mean, not even a watchmaker as prolific as George Daniels, who literally wrote the book on watchmaking, crafted every last component of the watches himself. Yeah, I think it's pretty challenging for to do that, especially when you start dealing with springs and mm-hmm. and watch crystals made out of sapphire and things like that it becomes a bit of a challenge and i think mm-hmm. i think these days uh when you hear about people who are crafting watches from scratch you, you know somebody like let's say uh roger smith for instance i think you're you'll find that most people sort of concede that 
you know, sort of 98% of it or whatever is, is being made by them. And then there are a few things like the crystals mm -hmm. and the, and the springs that are, that they're getting made for them just because the, the specialization in uh, metallurgy or, or in materials is just too challenging to, uh, to deal with on an individual level. And that's just it. And I think specialists really hits the nail on the head there. I mean, both Daniels and Roger Smith source things like their, the hair springs for their watches from specialists. Right. And uh, yeah, any sufficiently advanced tool or, or technology is not product of any one single person or company. We've advanced as a civilization because of specialization. Well, and to be fair, when you look at the history of watchmaking, when, when you, especially you, you take a look, let's say, at the classic thought of the Swiss watchmaker, you know, let's say um, Abraham Louis Bruguet, like that that era of watchmaking, it, they weren't individual people making an entire watch. Mm. They were people making pinions. There were people making gears. There were people making cases. There, and and they were you know sort of a cottage cottage industry of people doing very specialized things, and then somebody bringing those parts together and assembling them into a into a finished watch, but. You know, even the classic thought of a, you know, the classic watchmaker 300 years ago wasn't making the whole watch themselves. The specialization of a watchmaker, I would say, is getting the optimal performance out of all these disparate cogs and springs that they're they're putting together. To the extent that all these parts operate together so harmoniously and with such predictable regularity that they can measure the passage of time. And to reach that level a performance, a watchmaker needs to have a fundamental understanding of how these components are made and also the properties of the materials that the various parts are made from. So when someone does ask to know more about what I do beyond a rote answer, like I work with watches or I'm a watchmaker, I tend to liken what I do to that of someone who is able to take an old rusty car that hasn't run in decades and bring it back to showroom condition. Only the watchmaker's job isn't quite finished when the wheels start turning for the first time. Uh, that's really when the watchmaker's job begins, because it's only once the watch starts ticking does the more challenging work of actually getting it to keep time begin. What kind of condition then do you typically receive watches in? I mean, obviously every, you know, you're going to you're going to find things in all sorts of different conditions, everything I'm sure from stuff that's been left in a drawer for 50 years to stuff that people are, are actively wearing. But typically, like typically, are these watches functioning at all? Or are they, you know, are, do they just need a bit of a clean and, and tune? Or what, like what kind of condition do you typically get watches in? I wouldn't say there is a typical condition. That's part of what I like about what I do is every day is delivering something different for me to work on. It's rare that I'll get a piece in that doesn't need any new parts or any parts to be touched up or bushings closed or things like that. More often than not, there are pivots that are worn out because people let the watch run long enough and let the lubricants inside the watch degrade to such an extent that they stop doing what they're intended to do, which is to eliminate friction and actually crystallize and they begin to have an almost abrasive effect. On, on the components that they're supposed to be lubricating. Uh, so, for instance, this in the past month, I've, I've had one piece come in that needed no new parts. It was just standard maintenance. It took the whole watch apart, cleaned and inspected everything, put it all back together, fresh lubrication, slight timing adjustment, monitored it for a few days, and it was good to go. On the other hand, had some pieces come in that were not running or operative at all when they came in. Had pieces come in that were severely stricken by moisture, so they were beginning to corrode. Uh, so there's a lot to clean up there. Yeah, it really varies, and the age can vary quite a bit as well from something come in for its first service after only been in operation for in the range of five to seven years to something that's been around for 120, 150 years and, and is needing some work done on it. Right. Now, with these watches that need work done on parts, are you fabricating new parts? Are you purchasing new parts? Like, is this is this something where you can you can easily get parts for for these watches? It really depends on the particular watch. For the most part, it's more economical both for the person working on the watch as well as for the the client who owns the watch to be able to get parts directly from the factory that first made the watch. For pieces that were made in the last 
25, 30, 40 years, that's generally the best route. For watches that are older than that, you'll often find that parts are no longer in production, have been out of production for decades, and you just can't find the components anymore. And in those cases, we resort to making parts on a one-off basis. But you're generally looking at a multiple, I would say, of at least four, sometimes a 10x multiple on what it would cost to purchase a replacement part that was done by a CNC machine or a machine that was set up specifically to make that one part 100,000 times versus us measuring and making it uh, as a one-off component. Making one of something or 10 of something is, is quite challenging. Making 100,000 of something is, is actually quite easy mm. uh, because you design a machine that does nothing but make that spring or does nothing but cut the teeth on a gear. I think that that's something that most people don't quite realize when they when they talk about making things. They think about you know, in most cases, making something in, in large numbers, they think it's quite challenging. But for the most part, that's actually quite easy. Until you get into the the scale of somebody like an Apple, where yeah. you need to be able to produce, you know, 60 million of them for a three-month period. You know, when a when a new iPhone comes out or something, at that point, you then have serious problems of, of scale. It, it's, you know, you're, it's a significant challenge to produce that many. But when you're dealing with 100,000 of something, it's actually much easier to do that than it is to produce... 10 or 100 of something mm -hmm. yeah with the scale that apple's working at you you cross over that that bell curve on the economies of scale to the the total other side of the spectrum where you're actually starting to get into diseconomies of scale where your, your right. scale is actually working against you so did, in terms of the the word watchmaker sort of the commonly used word i have heard the term watchsmith used to describe what i do but personally i find that to be even more disingenuous than watchmaker, uh, as smithing generally entails hammering and forging of metals, which very few watch manufacturers, let alone individual watchmakers, ever do. And really, smithing isn't a, isn't an appropriate uh, technique for that kind of thing. I, I I have done a little bit of silversmithing in the past, where you know, in that case, I'm actually I was raising raising objects like a cup from a flat sheet with a with a hammer, and something like that is is smithing work. And even the work that I do. Some people call me a, a silversmith or or a goldsmith, but that that's really inappropriate for the work I do as well. So the, the term smith, I know it's something that's commonly used with people who make things in in a particular field, but it's often often misused and and inappropriate. So yeah, I I, I like the sound of of the term watchsmith, but I don't think it's really appropriate for for this kind of work. I like I like the sound of the term whitesmith, which is actually a very old term. A number of the very first Watch and clock makers were called whitesmiths. And they were essentially blacksmiths who post-processed and polished the iron that they were forging, ridding it of the black carbon scale that builds up on the metal as you're forging it until the metal shone through bright and shiny and white. Paradoxically, the highest level of polishing to fine watchmaking today is referred to as a black polish. Right. Which is essentially a surface that is polished so perfectly smooth and flat that it can reflect light without diffusion such that it appears to be perfectly black when you view it from just the right angle so i find that the term whitesmiths appealing but it, it's not something i could come to call myself i think there would be it, it's esoteric enough that I, I think you'd have a difficult time making people understand what it is that you're doing if you use that mm -hmm. term I, I think yeah, it's too yeah, precisely too far out of out of people's uh, uh lexicon for that to be a useful term mm -hmm. and over time it, it came to more generally refer to tinsmiths or other smiths who worked in white metals primarily tinsmiths i wouldn't be surprised to learn if aluminum workers were also called white smiths at some point but aluminum or aluminium as they would have called it in england uh, it was exceedingly rare back then. Uh, it was valued even more highly than gold. But now today we know it to be one of the most abundant, if not the most abundant metal that's found on the planet. To put a bow on things, a watchmaker knows how to make every component in a watch, and they know how all those components work together. But it's prohibitively expensive for one person to make every single component in a watch. That's not to say it's impossible. There are people who... I'm very close, like Roger Smith. But I mean, if you want to get yourself a Roger Smith, you're looking at an entry-level price in the high five figures. Uh, so most watch parts are fabricated on an industrial scale with industrial equipment. 
and then assembled into a finished product by a watchmaker. So the bulk of my work is in the service and restoration of mechanical timepieces. And if I happen to need to make a one-off part for a particular watch, I do. Uh, so most watchmaking schools will train their students on how to fabricate the most common parts in a watch that tend to wear or break. So you talked about people leaving a watch too long and, and lubrication drying out. What is that the sort of the greatest sin that people perform on their watches that they, they leave them running too long and they, they don't they don't have them lubricated regularly? Is that is that probably the biggest problem that you see with, with watches coming in? Yeah, that would be the the biggest cause of wear and tear in a watch movement. It's a really well made watch, like a, a Rolex will run for thirty years. And because it's so well engineered you're not going to know there's a problem until it has literally ground itself to a stop. And like pushing a watch out 30 years, it's like six times the effective length of the lubricants that are inside the watch. I mean, you you can push it to to seven years. In 10 years, you're more than likely going to be looking at some wear on a number of the parts. I mean, to put it into a bit of perspective too, the, the balance wheel in a watch, depending on how fast the watch is, is tuned to be running, uh, it's going to be upwards of half a million times a day that that wheel is flitting back and forth. And it's flitting back and forth on pivots that are smaller than the diameter of a human hair. And you run the math on that, and over the, the serviceable lifetime of the lubricant, that balance wheel will have been able to turn around the circumference of the Earth several times. And this is all happening with such a small quantity of lubricant. I saw a stat uh, a few years ago. I can't remember the precise brand it was, but it was a, one of the bigger brands like Rolex, where the amount of lubricant that they used for their entire production for a full year was something like 10 liters. Wow. And that's something I, th- I don't think a lot of people realize is that in, in a lot of cases, more lubricant is better. You know, I know when I'm when I'm using lubricant for, for turning or, you know, I'm, I'm lubricating, uh, let's say the headstock of a lathe or the ways on my lathe you know, putting, putting a little bit too much lubricant on there is, is rarely a bad thing. And it's, it's usually better than not having enough. But in, in watchmaking, if you're, if you're applying too much lubricant, that, that is just as bad as not having enough, right? Yeah, precisely. It's just like heating up the zinc that we were talking about at the beginning of the show. There's a sort of Goldilocks amount of lubricant that you want to get in there. Too much lubricant and capillary action will actually begin to start drawing the lubricant away from what it is you're trying to keep lubricated. So I mentioned watch making schools there and, and sort of what, what they teach. And each each school's a little bit different in, in the curriculum that they teach and, and the things that they'll focus on. Uh, but most of them will will run you through making replacement parts for, for a timepiece. Going back a few shows, you were encouraging people that, that you know, if this was something that interested them to to go ahead and, and pursue it. So I'd say that that if you are interested in pursuing a career in watchmaking or watch service or restoration, there are a number of, of excellent options at your disposal. Most schools today are sponsored by watchmaking conglomerates like Swatch or Richmond Group. So the tuition is free. Uh, you'll pay for your hand tools, which will cost you about $3,000 or so. Uh, but those tools are yours to keep and will be able to serve you for a lifetime for the most part. And you also make a number of tools throughout your your training that you'll also get to keep and that will also serve you throughout your career. One of the premier uh, entities as far as watch schools go uh, would be WOSTEP, which stands for the Watchmakers of Switzerland Training and Education Program. And they have a number of partner schools around the world, most of which are brand sponsored. So the the Swatch and, and the Richmond schools will have partnered with WOSTEP. Uh, so you'll be following the WOSTEP curriculum uh, at those schools. There are f- a few sort of, not competing organizations, but I guess uh, uh, similar organizations around the world that are, are trying to create a curriculum that's effective for the watchmaking industry. I- I'm currently going through the British Horological Institute's course, and the reason I chose to use theirs is because they have a uh, distance learning program which is something that unfortunately the WOSTEP program does not have any kind of distance learning. So if if you're in a situation like me where, you know, in my case, I, I can't afford to give up three years to to go and, and go back to school, there are programs out there that uh, like the BHI that have, you know, that have ways of, of learning that. Now, 
of course it is challenging because in my case I'm you know I'm reading through material and they do have tutors that you can that you can hire to to assist you with uh, with learning but you are teaching a lot of this to yourself so if you're if you're a little bit more mechanically inclined already in my case I'm already you know I'm already a skilled machinist and and so teaching myself some of these skills it's it's a little bit easier uh, I know I already know how to use a lathe but um, but that certainly is a challenge uh, and they do have uh, short courses, like a five-day course on, you know, let's say uh, disassembling and cleaning, you know, a simple ETA 2824 movement, or, you know, an introduction to the watchmaker's lathe or something like that. And it, you know, might be a five-day course. Um, so that, that can be a good, uh, a good solution for people who, uh, who maybe don't have the ability to give up three years for a, for a school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors down in the United States, the NAWCC, uh, also runs a school that has some short courses that they provide. The American Watch and Clockmakers Institute, the AWCI, is another one that does some short courses. If you're in N- NYC, New York, the Horological Society of New York also offers a, a free intro to watchmaking course, and that's actually been touring around the United States as of late, so popping up in places like Miami and, and San Francisco for a weekend. Uh, another is uh, the Swiss American Watchmakers Training Alliance, SATA. Uh, that's a Rolex-backed initiative. So Rolex has partnered with a number of schools under SATA, and these schools are also tuition-free. And Rolex itself operates the Lidditz Watch Technicum in Pennsylvania, which is a, a phenomenal school if you can get in. Uh, but because of the detailed nature uh, of the training at most of these schools, the ratio of teachers to students, even in the short courses, is generally incredibly low, which is great. But this, coupled with the often free tuition, also means that competition for positions in these programs is high. Right. Now, with a with a program that is being uh, sponsored by, let's say, Rolex or, or Rishma or somebody like that, or are they typically offering jobs to to these students afterwards, or is there you know an expectation that that you that you work for the company for a certain number of years afterwards, or what are what is that kind of relationship like? You're not guaranteed to be given a job or offered a job by the sponsoring brand or organization, uh, and they also don't bind you in any way. So once you've you've graduated, you're you're free to to go on and, and work wherever you please. I know at Lidditz, they actually have a, a service center uh, that is based right there as well. Uh, so some students do graduate from there and, and go right to working for Rolex. Um, others want to get out of Amish country as sort of as quickly as they can. So they'll head <laughs> off to a big city and work for a boutique or something, or they'll strike out on their own and, and open up their own shop and, and go about things that way. I guess for the for the brands, it's a it's a great opportunity to find the the talented watchmakers as they're coming out because obviously there's we as we've mentioned there's a, a huge demand for for watchmakers and and I guess if you're if you're sponsoring these uh, these companies, of course you gain the benefit of just having people in the industry. But if uh, if there's a particularly talented watchmaker coming out of there, I guess you get uh, sort of your first crack at uh, at hiring them. Exactly, and I think that's kind of along the lines of the premise of the the training program that Patek has launched in New York City. And that is particularly hard to get into. And they only open up spaces every two years. And the first class will just be coming up on graduation in the coming year. And they're based at Patek Philippe's uh, New York City Service Center. So they've got a a classroom there with, I believe, six students that they're training. And And I believe each and every one of them will have the opportunity to go on to work for Patek there in New York should they wish. Another excellent school uh, is actually the Finnish School of Watchmaking in Espo. It's graduated some of the, the top talent working at well-known firms basically around the world, primarily in, in Switzerland and Germany, uh, and not to mention also graduating world-class watchmakers like Kerry Votilainen. Yeah, I was going to say there, there are a few, a few t- really talented um, Finnish watchmakers out there that have, have made quite the name for themselves. And uh... I know there aren't a lot of them, but they the ones who are who are making a name for themselves they're they're quite talented. Yeah, there's, there's Kari and uh, Stepan Sarpaneva, um, Mika Risinen. I believe he works for uh, Metro du Temps. Torsi Line. He was an IT professional turned watchmaker, and uh, Antti Ronko is another one. He produced a, 
and one of his first timepieces was, I believe, the Steel Labyrinth. It's a great program, uh, really talented students coming out of there. And they have a partnership with uh, another school in Germany that I believe is based in Glashütte. And uh, they get to go there and, and spend some time honing their skills uh, there with, with some of the German watchmakers. And there are, of course, a number of great options in, in Switzerland, uh, including the, the KHWCC, uh, whose alumni have gone on to work for numerous big brands, as well as for independent watchmakers like Roger W. Smith. And then, of course, like like you mentioned, uh, there's a good number of correspondence courses available too. And I've, I've seen the odd online course offered, but it, it's generally more for um, sort of amateur watchmaking and just sort of getting a, a feel for what it's like to take a movement apart and put it back together. The BHI course is, is excellent. I think you uh, you made a good pick there. I've been impressed with the material now. It's interesting because they have sort of two programs. There's a uh, there's sort of the introduction program and then the intermediate and advanced program is the second one. They've gone through and rewritten the be- the beginner's course uh, and it's it's excellent. I, l- I love the material that they've got in that. And I know that they're working on rewriting the intermediate and advanced course, which I have a copy of right now, the old one. Uh, but it's a bit of a hodgepodge of articles and material that that's been written over the last forty years. So uh, it's a bit of a a bit of a mess right now in terms of just the the flow of it, and there are things that are that are repeated a couple of times and whatnot. So yeah, it's a bit of a it's a the advanced the intermediate and advanced course is a bit of a a bit of a challenge to sort of read through just from a continuity point of view. But their their beginners course has already been rewritten and it is outstanding. I, I certainly recommend that if you. If you're thinking about it, it's a relatively inexpensive way of getting uh, a great sort of introduction into watchmaking. And, and, you know, you'll find out very quickly whether it's something that you're actually going to enjoy. And it's you get this huge volume of, of reading material. It's uh, I think it works out to being somewhere around 1,300 pages of, of reading material. Uh, and, and they talk about a lot of things. They talk about the theory of watching, watchmaking, the theory of how mechanical watches work as well as a little bit of clockwork so the bhi not only teaches watchmaking but also clockmaking if you go on to do the exams and get your certification through bhi you choose whether you are going through the clock stream or the watch stream uh, there is a bit of both taught in in all the courses so you do learn a little bit about you know, for instance, if you're if you're primarily interested in watches, you're still going to learn things about pendulum clocks, for instance, because it's it's such a uh, fundamental principle of of timekeeping that you you know they want you to know and understand how a, how a clock works as well. There's a there's a lot of good information in there. That, as you mentioned, uh, you know, people are expected to make a couple of their own tools, and so they walk you through you know learning how to make some of those tools and whatnot as well. Uh, so yeah, it's it's an interesting program and. Uh, I'm, I haven't decided if I'm going to go through it and finish the actual diploma part of it and, and do the exams and, and do that. that. That's a bit onerous for me um, because it does involve, they, they hold their exams once a year, uh, I think typically in May every year. And, um, and so it involves going over to the UK for, for a couple of weeks to, to write exams. So I'm not sure if I'll ever get around to doing the, the exams proper, but uh, even just having the, the knowledge and and working through the the courses, it's a an excellent way to you know to to get into the you know get into this industry. Now, do they still offer the possibility of having another watchmaker, clockmaker over see your exam pieces? I know of a, a clockmaker who had done the the BHI course, and he had a sponsor clockmaker. Yeah, they they want you to. So one of the, one of the interesting things about the way that their program works, uh, their their distance learning program works, is that they they expect you to do more than just pass the exams. You you have pieces that you need to to work on and send in. Uh, they also expect you to do restoration work on on pieces. So you need to keep a log of the work that you've done on pieces. You need to document them. And typically, you need to have an experienced watchmaker or clockmaker uh, sort of look over the work that you've done and sort of confirm that it is, in fact, um, you know, up to the the standards that are required and that you've done the work that's necessary. You know, just because you found one problem with a watch obviously doesn't mean that you found all the problems with a watch. And so, you know, they want to know that you've actually done a, you know, a good job with it because at the end of the day, they're 
you know, they, they want you to have skills, but they also want the people who are in the industry to be skilled enough to be doing competent work. You don't want somebody, you know, who's, who's got this, you know, the BHI seal of approval and, and is doing substandard work. And, um, so I, I don't know what's involved for those outside of the UK with finding sponsoring watchmakers or clockmakers to, to sort of oversee the work that they're doing. Uh, I haven't, again, I haven't looked into that enough yet because I, I still haven't decided if I, if I want to go down the road of actually, um, uh, getting the certification but it is something that they they can assist you with i know that the, they can help find people that are that are a little bit more local to you now it might be a challenge for you know somebody like me living in in ottawa where you know i don't know if there are any other sort of bhi certified watchmakers anywhere near me uh, so that that might be a challenge if you're you know in the middle of nowhere it might be uh might be you know i should say the middle of nowhere watch wise you know sort of as the watch world uh, you may have a difficult time finding somebody. They do have tutors that you can pay to get access to. And so you can send your, your, your parts and your pieces into the BHI and they have tutors who are local that then, you know, sort of go through them and, and check them for the, for the work. And they give you feedback on, on the work that you're doing and they can be available electronically to, you know, sort of answer your questions if you're struggling with something. Have you done any of the practical exercises yet or is it primarily been reading up to this point yeah at this point i haven't done a lot of the practical work i'm, I'm in an interesting situation right now i i have um i have a shop that is is sort of my messy shop right now and it's uh i've converted a two-car garage into uh into a workspace that is uh, i guess it's around 23 feet by 19 feet and unfortunately, because of the kind of work that I do in there, I do a lot of machining in there. I do a lot of uh, casting and things like that in there. And it's not conducive to doing delicate, clean watch work in, in a place like that. So I, I'm in the process of uh, converting my basement into a sort of a quote unquote clean studio for doing uh, watch work and jewelry work. And so, or at least some parts of the jewelry work, obviously things like casting and polishing and whatnot those are always going to be be done sort of in the other shop you know i've been reading the material and and doing the the theoretical part of it uh right now and sort of rereading through parts of that because of, of course there's a lot of a lot of theory behind watchmaking a lot of math involved in in figuring out how th how this stuff works and um once i've finally finished uh converting this basement studio into uh into something that's usable Hopefully by the end of uh, the end of 2017, I'll have a, a usable space down there, and uh, at that point, I'll be able to set up and and actually get working on on the practical side of it. When we talk about watchmaking, we often think about the the Swiss as the you know sort of the watchmaking world. But what other centers of watchmaking are there around the world? Like where do, where would people typically find uh, a lot of jobs in watchmaking because that's where the industry is? What what are the the typical places that that people might find work in in sort of large factories or in brand centers well if you want a large factory china is your place probably not probably not the nicest working environment compared to the rolling hills and mountains of of switzerland germany glasgow is definitely a, a hotbed uh, of fun watchmaking and just just over the border to france from the valley de juvie quite a high concentration of talent that's living there and you've got a few small shops or brands, what have you, working there. Isle of Man in the UK, of course. That's Roger Smith and George Daniels. There are a few uh, English brands that are starting to try and, and come up again. And uh, and because England was at one point the, the world leader in in watchmaking and then sort of died out. Of, uh, and, and that industry has sort of gone away to, to a large degree. But... I think there are a few people trying to sort of bring bring watchmaking back natively into on the island. Mm -hmm. And the same holds true in in the U.S. as well. A number of of young upstarts trying to to bring a revival to that. Cause the USA used to be a, a titan in terms of watchmaking back in the the heyday of the railroad and pocket watches. Well, the Swiss were actually uh, quite intimidated by the level of automation that the Americans had brought to the scene. Prior to the USA picking up watchmaking, interchangeable parts were just not, they were unthinkable. 
kind of Swiss, Switzerland and England were kind of the premier watchmaking centers in that era when everything was, was sort of hand fit, hand adjusted. You get these raw abosh movements and everything would have to be, be custom fit and adjusted on a per piece basis. Kind of been interesting to see see the way that things have transferred over the years. So England was was quite prominent. France as well. That's where Breguet was was based. And then you'd have partnerships between like Breguet and, and Arnold up in England. And another epicenter of watchmaking is of course Japan. And we've got right. Seiko and Citizen. I mean, as far as vertically integrated manufacturers go, Seiko is one of the few on the planet. Rolex is another that comes to mind where they can literally make everything that that goes into a watt from the hairspring to the mainspring to every single gear, all the case parts, crystals, the work. And those are some of the few large manufacturers that aren't part of one of the two big conglomerates, either the Richemont group or the uh, the Swatch group. They're they're still independent of the, of the big uh, groups and and are able to do all the work themselves, which is is quite rare. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, most of the rest of the the Swiss watch industry is dependent on the Swatch Group's Niverox division for their their balance assemblies and hairsprings and, and escapements. I mean, even Patek Philippe gets their Gyromax balance assemblies made by the Swatch Group. Yeah, and I, I was I've been doing some research into uh, into watch movements myself lately because I'm I'm thinking about using some for a for a line of watches. And uh, even Eterna, who is is in the process of trying to sort of replace Eta as the go-to suppliers for you know for base movements for for small brands, uh, and even they get their their balance wheels and springs from uh, from Eta. They're not uh, they're not making them themselves. Kind of a curious turn of events there. Eta is a spinoff from Eterna back in the early part of last century. So Eta is basically a, a concatenation of Eterna. And then they, through a series of, of split-offs and mergers and acquisitions, are two totally separate entities now. And, and Eta is owned by the Swatch Group and, and powers much of the, the Swiss watch industry or has for pretty much decades, really. But now Eterna's kind of come in, and they're back into the game now that Eta is actually cutting off supply from other brands. Eterna has stepped up and is beginning to open up and, and become pretty much replace ETA as a supplier of movements, uh, sort of the move that they're they're trying to make. So it's this interesting turn of events, especially because Eterna has since been acquired by a, a Chinese conglomerate. So things have sort of come full circle. Yeah, they're they're doing some fascinating things with uh, with their movements, and, I, and I'm sure that's something that we're going to discuss more in the future because it's um, I, I'm excited by by what I'm seeing. I, I've been researching you know movement manufacturers for a few years now. It's been a challenge trying to find quality movements from from people that are willing to sell, you know, anything from from a handful to maybe a hundred movements, and most of them are are not doing particularly interesting things with those with movements in that scale. You need to be buying thousands of movements from them before you can get into customized um, complications and things like that in them. But the uh, the Eterna, especially the the Caliber thirty nine, is a fascinating attempt to to make the customization of a movement possible without needing to buy thousands and thousands of, of movements from them. So, yeah, I'm I'm sure we'll talk a, a lot more about Eterna in the future. We'll have links to a lot of these watchmaking schools in in the show notes, so that uh, if you are curious about it, start doing some research in there, and we'll get we'll get good links in there, so that you can hopefully find find one that fits you. And if you have any questions, you can feel free to send us a note at hello at offhours.show. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at offhours. John can be found on Twitter at underthelope, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand.